0: So we're in uh, the book of Philippians this summer, and uh, so I'd encourage you to turn there. We're in chapter 2 and verse 19 today. And uh, as you're doing that, I just want to tell you a little bit about my uh, first job. So anybody, I'm going to take some of you way back today. Just think about, can you remember that first job that you had? Maybe some of you hadn't had a job yet, so this is going to take you forward in anticipation of when you will uh, start working maybe as a teenager. So I was a teenager. I, Of course I had had, you know, jobs all along working on the farm of course with my dad and helping him pump gas uh, during the winter and working for a few other farmers doing various things and uh, but when I had my first sort of regular job with that regular paycheck, it was at Bonanza Restaurant on Fairlight Drive in Saskatoon. Does anybody remember Bonanza or Ponderosa, maybe? Oh, boy. Buffets are just the worst places to work at. They can be so gross. The day I got started, I mean, I'm on washroom duty and bussing tables duty. It doesn't get much better at an all-you-can-eat Bonanza. So gross. But I learned how to work hard on the farm, my dad taught me well, and, uh, and so the manager uh, was quite impressed, and he moved me up the ranks quickly. Uh, dish pit. <laughs> and I, it took me no time to dominate the dish pit and get that thing organized and get those dishes clean in record time. I always set, you know, sort of markers for myself. And he goes, oh wow, we gotta put this guy in the kitchen, see what he can do. Well, my mom taught me how to cook when I was at home, so this was awesome. Started out on uh, the line doing prep, getting the the plates uh, organized and ready to go with all the garnish so that the fry guy could put his thing on and then the broiler would put on chicken steak, whatever ribs. We'd put it out the window with a ticket. Servers would pick it up and take it to the table. Pretty straightforward, right? So I did prep for a while and then graduated quickly to fries. (laughs) It's the fry guy. I went home smelling like a French fry. (laughs) wiping the grease off my forehead every night. And I thought, well this is no problem. I can do this easily until Mother's Day. (laughs) Mother's Day, the lineup was, I wasn't prepared for this. The the lineup was out the door. It was continual. And so what happened was behind the the broiler and behind the fry, uh, the frying area, the oven and the deep fryer, uh, was these two little boxes where they would print the orders, so tickets would come off, and this thing just wouldn't stop. <laughs> and it was, literally, it was going down to the floor and curling in a roll on the floor, and I couldn't keep up, and I had a meltdown. I mean, it was my first real kind of stressful job like that. I'd never experienced anything like this, and I completely melted down, and I started freaking out in the kitchen. Manager's busy out on the floor. Uh, He's a good guy, but he took time, called a timeout, came into the kitchen, literally grabbed me by the shoulder and said, Eldon, calm down. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And he showed me how to get a system going of pulling only so many, lining them up, pulling all of the ingredients for that, those orders uh, at once, doing them getting them plated, move down the line, take the next ones. And, and he helped me for a little while until I was no longer panicking. And then I, I learned the system, and in one day, literally, I figured it out. And after that, it was not a problem, uh, you know, going through even a busy day, which was nothing compared to Mother's Day. All of that to say, the book of Philippians is kind of like a first job at Bonanza. And you're saying, say, What? How can the book of Philippians be like working at Bonanza? So here's the thing. We get into this wonderful book, which is known for rejoicing. It's a testament of joy. The Apostle Paul is writing to this church that he was so proud of. And, and, and the things that, uh, that they, uh, as they partnered with the gospel, and, uh, with him in the, in the work of the gospel, proclaiming Jesus and being faithful. And, uh, and so there was a lot of rejoicing and there's excitement when you first get that job. Things are going well and you're like, yes, I can do this. But it quickly gets challenging as the Apostle Paul tells this church that, hey, you know what, you, you now need to start living a life that is worthy of the gospel that you proclaim. And that means <clears throat> that into your life are going to come things like suffering. Hmm. Didn't sign up for that. It's going to get a little intense, the heat will soon come into your life, the tickets are gonna start rolling. And in all of that, oh remember to be humble, to put the interests of others ahead of yourself, take the way of Jesus, and then all of a sudden, the ticket machine really picks up speed when Paul implores the church and us ultimately to stop grumbling and disputing, so that we can be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom we shine as lights to the world and we lose it. <laughs> I mean, we're, we know we're supposed to shine, but it's just so easy to freak out when the pressure is on and to go back into the old ways of grumbling and complaining and disputing and not letting our light shine in the kitchen. I have, I have had so many people come up to me after last week's sermon when Pastor Matt, our lead pastor, was here. He hadn't been around for a while, but that was such a fantastic sermon last week. If you were here, so good. I loved it when he put his hand on the, on the podium and he just started grumbling. That was awesome. <clears throat> but the reason why it was so good is because it so hits a nerve because we all so do this. Don't we? In fact, I would dare say the people that came to me and said that was such a great sermon are the people that probably grumbled the most and that's why I thought it was such a great sermon. And the tickets are down to the floor and rolling up in a ball, and we throw our hands in the air and say, I can't do this. Is it even possible to live the kind of life that Paul is calling us to? This sanctification business that Pastor Matt talked about and explained so well last week. Like it's, how do, It's so hard. How do we live this life? And so Paul, in the middle of this wonderful book, this wonderful letter to this church, he calls a bit of a timeout. And as the manager, you know, he kind of steps in and he says, just wait a minute. Um, Let's just calm down a little bit and I want to show you how it's done. And that's what chapter 2, verses 19 through 30 is all about. He says, hey, guys, Gals, it, it is possible. You can do this. And let me, I'm not just going to tell you that it's possible. I'm going to show you that it's possible. Yeah, we have the example of Jesus, but Jesus is like not just the manager. He owns the, the chain. <laughs> he owns the restaurant. He can do all things. How are we ever supposed to attain to the way of Jesus and be like him? But Paul says, okay, I've got two live, real-life examples for you. Two men whose lights shone as these stars in that corner of the universe. And these are the examples for you to follow. Philippians 2, starting at verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. First star, who shone. The first light who shone, Timothy. So that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all, and has been distressed because he, you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Isn't that good to know that even a guy like Apostle Paul struggled with some anxiety? It's comforting to me. So rejoice, so receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Let's take a moment to pray and then we're gonna just pick this text apart a little bit. Father, thank you so much for your word and for the example of these two lights who shone brightly in the midst of their crooked and perverse generation and world and the examples that they are to us. And so I pray, God, that you would help us all this morning to take a deep breath, to calm down, and to realize that you have this wonderful plan for our lives, just as you did for the church in Philippi, for Paul, who is sitting in a Roman prison writing a letter, who was restrained, but the gospel was not and how he relied on people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. So, Lord, from these two lives, teach us today by your Holy Spirit and through your word as we, uh, as we study this text. Lord, this, uh, have your way among us today to bring a challenge, a conviction, an encouragement, truth that you want to reveal to us that we haven't seen before. Lord, do this among us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So John Piper said this, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul. It's more than a good feeling, though, <clears throat> I, w- I would add. Uh, he said, produced, not by circumstances, whether life is going well or whether life is not going well, but he said, Christian joy is a good feeling in the soul, produced, not emotions either, in the soul, produced by the Holy Spirit as he causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the word, and in the world. So Timothy and Epaphroditus uh, exemplified the beauty of Christ in the world. They really did. Here are two flesh and blood, everyday Christians who lived what Paul had been getting at, one of them who almost died in the process. And so this is one of those parts of the Bible that especially resonates with me and encourages me because Paul doesn't hold them up like the author of, of Hebrews holds up these iconic symbols of you know, the heroes of the faith in, in the history of redemption, the ones that that just in the, you know, the, the hall of fame. But he holds these two men up as very ordinary, very human uh, guys who shone uh, to the people around them. Epaphroditus would have been, you know, might have been the guy just sitting right over here. Uh, you could talk to him. He was part of the community, uh, you, we could notice for ourselves the way he imitated Christ. We may have prayed for him as a church when we heard that he was sick. And Timothy, maybe he was the guest preacher who came in, the one that you met after the, the sermon, and you thanked him for the message, and he would actually be interested to know about your life. And and he cared about you. These were real present people. And I think what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Guys like Timothy and Epaphroditus took that seriously and now the same applies to us. We can be imitators of them as they were of Paul who was of Christ and set for us a model, an example uh, for us in the church today. So what can we imitate in the lives of Timothy And Epaphroditus is going to be a fairly simple message this morning. I just want to pull out six things, three from each man's life and a few more that they both had in common. This will be more than enough for us to chew on this week. (laughs) Timothy was known, first of all, for a genuine concern for others. I love that this is what the Apostle Paul mentioned first. Timothy, my dear son, Uh, who genuinely cares for you. He's mentioned uh, Timothy throughout the New Testament. Paul called him his true child in the faith. They had this special relationship as a spiritual father and a son. Um, Timothy was Paul's prodigy, the one that he mentored to be a leader to the next generation in the church. And as such, Timothy is likely to be sent to the Philippians because they needed guidance, they needed uh, a pastor, They needed someone who would genuinely care for the church as a leader should. And so earlier in in Philippians, Paul commanded this church, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And Timothy lived this. He genuinely cared about other people. And this is something that, friends, we need to imitate. A genuine care for other people in the church. I, I could talk about this point alone for the rest of the morning, but we've got to move on. Timothy was also known for, I would <clears throat> it's not stated explicitly, but I would pull it out, and it links to the first one, a, a, a relational warmth. A relational warmth. <clears throat> Timothy and Paul had this unique relationship that was very warm, uh, and as a father and, a, and as a son and and Paul, as he was mentoring this young uh, prodigy, his son in the faith, he was just so concerned about Timothy that he would be strong enough to lead in a church where sometimes uh, there can be disputes and divisions and arguments and those kinds of things and uh, i think I think timothy was a was a bit of an anxious fellow I mean he was the guy. That Paul wrote to in a letter to say, you know what, you got you got stomach problems. <laughs> you're maybe you're a little weak in the gut. Uh, I I wonder if it wasn't because of anxiety. Paul said, you know, instead of drinking just water, maybe you should try a little bit of wine for that. You know, maybe it'll help your stomach. Some medicinal reasons there. And but but Paul instructed Timothy over and over again that you know, for you setting troublemakers straight, warning divisive people, these don't come naturally for you you're going to need to work at that he had a hard time being tough i think timothy was a soft soul he had a tender heart and uh and that's just who he was and that's that's the person that paul wanted on his team third thing about timothy was that he had an incredible focus on the gospel he served with Paul in the gospel or you might say in the work of the gospel or even more specifically and primarily in the preaching of the gospel. Timothy was a preacher. He was a teacher. Um, our mission and vision and values as a church, uh, you can go to our website to get the more specifics as we aim to see uh, people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're all about. We exist to follow Jesus authentically, and lead others to follow him, to be transformed by the gospel, and more specifically, at our end of the Fraser Valley, the Eastern Fraser Valley, we wanna see all people transformed by the gospel. That's what we're about. And that's why Paul chose Timothy, because he was so focused on the gospel. It's It's one of our values, the very first one in fact. We want to be centered on the gospel. We want everybody in this church to know what the gospel is and who the good news is in that we proclaim. We do that by by being rooted in the Bible. So we understand what the good news of Jesus is. As we gather in community, as we're empowered by the Spirit, because we can't do this on our own, as we're equipped for ministry, and my role as a pastor, as with Timothy, was to equip others to do the work. We encourage, we champion, we support, we give resources. We say, you can do this. <laughs> and, and you do it. And, and we get the joy, as with the <laughs> Apostle Paul, in seeing the work of ministry accomplished and the advancement of the gospel happen as we are sent on mission no matter where God has placed us. And so that's uh, what I love about Central. Uh, I love this church. Been uh, This coming fall, we'll be... We'll, Be at Central six years going into our seventh year with Central. Um, And uh, our longest ministry yet, this place is fantastic. We have a great team. We have a great focus. We have a great mission. And uh, it's a high and a holy calling. I love the baptism and ministry partnership videos that we saw some recently where people are, are asked to answer this question, what is it about the gospel that most captures your heart? tell us what has jesus done to transform your life those are the kind of stories that we love hearing paul was all about the gospel he labored constantly to share the good news of jesus and he looks at timothy and he says this guy has proven himself he's doing it he is valuable look at his track record and i'm going to send him to you because you need to learn from him So sharing the gospel requires a relational warmth and it requires a genuine care for others. In fact, I would say if we don't share the good news, we actually don't care much about people. But it has to be done relationally. It has to be done relationally. So what is the gospel? Really quick, I want to take us to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 5, In a nutshell, if there's any one place you could go to to describe what the gospel is, the good news, Paul lays it out. He said, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Remember, salvation, three tenses, past, present, future, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and from the presence of sin in the future, right now we're being saved from the power of sin. Penalty is when you put your faith in Jesus and he's delivered you from the death sentence unto life. But he said, in which, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And this is what Paul preached. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That's the first thing about the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins. And that's what we're going to celebrate today at the end of this service. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. Jesus died. He was buried. There's no doubt that he died. He stayed in the grave for three days. He was raised from the dead in victory over sin, Satan, and death, victorious, resurrection, to give us new life. He was seen. There was witnesses who saw that Jesus was alive. It's a recorded historical fact that he was raised from the dead. He had died and how he was alive and then he ascended to heaven. That, friends, is the gospel in a nutshell. And so within that, there is some bad news we need to deliver to people that we are sinners, all of us. God created all things. He's perfect. He had a great plan for our lives, but uh, Adam and Eve started this break away from him to go do things their own way. That's what sin is. It's just saying, God, I'm going to do things my way and not yours. And it's rebellion. It's saying, I know better than you. And that opens this split, this divide between us and God, this relational barrier that we can't cross. Because you see, Scripture says that our sin leads to death, spiritual death. We are dead in our transgressions. And dead people don't walk very well. And so Jesus made a way for that. God made a way through Christ because he loved us. That he sent Jesus to walk this earth. And there's the good news. Jesus walked this earth. He did it perfectly. He was the only person who never sinned. And in that, right to the end, he had his sight set on the cross where he would go to be nailed to that cross, to die a horrible and humiliating death, to bear the wrath of God and appease the justice of God against a righteous and a holy just God against the sin and the penalty that we deserve, Jesus took upon himself. And when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, we are saved. It's not our work, it's his We are not righteous in any way, shape, or form. Even the best thing we do, Scripture reminds us, is like a filthy, dirty rag that gets thrown in the garbage. But Jesus is righteous, and he died on our behalf, and he took all of that filth, and he nailed it there to the tree. And he paid for it. And when we trust that, we are made clean, and he comes to live in us by his Spirit, and then we come to the table having believed that and we celebrate what he did for us. Friends, that's good news. Amen. <laughs> Can I get another witness aside from Bill and Heather over here? Like, amen. Can I? <laughs> that's good news. I live in that every day because I need that. I need that reminder every day because there's nothing good in me. The gospel means that people can be reconciled not only to God but to other people where there's unforgiveness and bitterness and sin and earthly relationships. God can heal those things. He can restore them. He can help us to live a full life. And he brings us back from the brink of eternal, eternal death into eternal life when we believe in him and we put our faith in him which is also a gift. Salvation is all about God's grace to us which is a free gift that we can do nothing to earn but the faith to believe that is also a gift so I'm praying this morning if you don't know Jesus in this way and have this kind of relationship with God that he right now will give you the ability the faith to believe and that today your life would be changed because of the good news of Jesus Christ and that's who Timothy was he was a guy who lived this And he came to model it to the church. And you know what? Telling others the good news sometimes is difficult, especially if this relational warmth and connection is not natural to us. So we need people like Timothy to observe, to say, okay, it's possible. I'm gonna watch you. I'm gonna see how you do this. But we develop our own style and way of relating to people. And I wanna say to all of you this morning who are strong believers and Christians but are not sharing the good news, you can do this. You can. And, uh, and I'm, I'm praying all the time that God would open up doors for the, the, the gospel among us. That we would just simply walk through and be amazed that he's going to do in us and through us to this whole area. So now, i got to move on. Boy, I'm really preaching hard there. <laughs> Timothy was known primarily for who he was. Uh, He had this warm, relational, pastoral, teacher-evangelist side to him. But Epaphroditus, he's completely different. Epaphroditus is known, and Paul picks up on what he did. Epaphroditus was a task-oriented, type-A, wired-for-acts-of-service, apostle-prophet, get-her-done kind of guy. That's who Epaphroditus was, totally different than Timothy. And Paul said, here's another guy who, Sean, I want to tell you about him and I'm going to send them to you because you sent them to me first. I'm sending them back. Epaphroditus was known as, first of all, a worker. That's how he's described as Paul. He's a worker. I love workers in the church. I love workers because, you see, without workers, this wouldn't get set up. Without workers, there would be no administration of ministry. I can do administration, but I hate it. <laughs> Just saying. Just saying. Does anybody love administration I know people out there who do bless your heart you can have it (laughs) but I need you the church needs you It's people who work Uh, they they get things done Epaphroditus was sent by the church in Philippi to serve the apostle Paul make sure his needs were met because in Roman prison they didn't do that for you you're on your own and they brought a, an offering. Paphroditus delivered an offering. So he was a worker. He knew how to get the job done. So uh, somehow in the process, we're not, we don't know how, whether on the way to Paul or while helping him, Epaphroditus got really sick and he almost died. And so you have this man who travels a long distance to bring money and help and support to Paul, nearly dying in the process. And what is Epaphroditus' main concern? This is amazing to me, verse 26. His main concern is that the people back home are going to have anxiety because he's sick and he's worried about them. Oh, no, 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 my illness is going to cause them a lot of stress. That's amazing. Both Timothy and Epaphroditus had the interests of others and of Christ Jesus first. And that's been Paul's whole point up until this time out in Philippians. He says, you guys think this is hard? Sure it is, but here's two guys that are doing it. So while Timothy is an example of serving others with genuine care and relational warmth, Epaphrodites demonstrates service through hardship. He exemplifies the suffering of Christ, not by doing is easy and convenient but out of concern for others and a desire to serve Christ in his church he put his own comfort and well-being aside so that the gospel could keep going forward and this is why Paul wrote that Epaphroditus was not only uh, a worker but he was a soldier this kind of calling isn't on just anybody but we are all called to be a soldier for Christ to literally do battle some do it Better and more intensely than others, but Epaphroditus didn't have a hard time being tough, obviously. This guy was so similar to Paul who risked his life many times for the sake of the gospel and for the church, literally obedient to the point of death. And Epaphroditus' um, um, toughness and his, uh, his ability to fight was not passive. This isn't just someone who experiences hardship as it happens and and goes with it. This was someone, the word literally means someone marching through hardship with actual intent. So how many of you uh, recognize the name Dietrich Bonhoeffer? (laughs) Wonderful book. uh, A biography written by uh, our, our taxis or whatever the guy's name was I can give it to you later about Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was a pastor and a theologian in Germany in the first half of the 20th century and as the Nazis attempted to bring uh, all of Germany under its control part of that was its churches they wanted to control and influence the churches in Germany And uh, Bonhoeffer was part of what was called the Confessing Church, and it was a group that resisted this movement, obviously. But there were other churches that didn't resist, amazingly. During this time, Bonhoeffer had the opportunity to get out of Germany and go to serve in America in the late 1930s, and at first he did travel there, but he wrestled with being away from Germany and eventually wrote the following in a letter. And he said, I have had time to think and pray about my situation and that of my nation and to have God's will for me clarified. I have come to the conclusion that I have made a mistake in coming to America. I must live through this difficult period of our national history with the Christian people of Germany. I shall have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will face the terrible alternative of either willing the defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive, or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying our civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice in security. And so like Epaphroditus, he actively sought hardship in order to advance the kingdom of God. Bonhoeffer's choice to go back to Germany to work to subvert the Nazi government's corruption of the church, eventually to help Jews escape Germany, and literally to be a spy and be involved in in taking down Hitler himself, they were driven by a commitment to Christ. It was, number one, the work against the nation for the sake of Christ, and number two, uh, well for him it was a choice, either work against the nation for the sake of Christ or submit to the nation and abandon Christ. And so he chose suffering. And his choice resulted in prison, and eventually just literally months before the war ended his own death in a concentration camp. Like Epaphroditus, he was a worker, he was a soldier, and he was third, a messenger. <clears throat> I, I would describe a messenger, well, someone who delivers a message, and he, he was delivering a message from the Philippian church to Paul. But he was also a co-laborer with Paul in the gospel, and, but he delivered uh, the message of the good news. It, it, he conveyed it to people in a different way than Timothy would, who was an upfront preacher-teacher. And so the apostle said, So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men before he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Excuse me. I'm losing my voice too, Cecily <laughs> and Dan. It's one of those weeks. Now, this is an intriguing part of the text where Paul said, he said, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So, is Paul taking a jab at the Philippians and saying, well, you didn't do enough, but Epaphroditus did? (laughs) I mean, he's the one who had to complete what you were lacking? No, let me explain. Paul is not criticizing the Philippians here. You know, sure, the Philippian letter contains correction for this church, but it's very much a letter of encouragement and friendship in fact, at the end of the letter, Paul wrote, Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. <coughs> a fragrant offering is sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. Doesn't sound like Paul is unhappy with them at all. Paul is not saying that they were lacking because they had to send Epaphroditus with their gift. Rather, Paul was lacking. What Paul was lacking was the Philippians themselves. He wanted them, but he couldn't have them there because he was in prison in Rome. He lacked their presence. He lacked their community. He lacked their support. And that's why he said Epaphroditus made up what they lacked because Epaphroditus actually came to Paul and represented the entire body of Christ to him which he was so thankful for. Epaphrodites came to Paul, not only bringing money that filled a lack that Paul had, but he brought himself. The language is similar to Colossians chapter one, verse 24, where Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. Did Paul make up for a shortcoming that Jesus had? No, because Jesus didn't have any shortcomings. <laughs> So when he said that I am um, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body, what Paul is saying is that uh, he's making up that personal presence. He's being Jesus to these people. That's what being a messenger is all about. It's being the presence and the fragrance of Christ to others. John Piper said, Christ has prepared a love offering for the world by suffering and dying for sinners. It is full and lacking nothing except one thing, a personal presentation by Christ himself to the nations of the world. God's answer to this lack is to call people of Christ, people like Paul, Timothy, Paphroditus, like you, like me, to make a personal presentation of the afflictions of Christ to the world. In doing this, we fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. We finish what they were designed for, namely a personal presentation to the people who do not know about their infinite worth and the love that God has for them. So my question to you and to all of us, to me this morning, is who are you pouring into? Into whose life are you making up what is lacking? In other words, to whom are you being Christ? That's the main question that I want us to walk away from this morning having partaken in communion which represented what Jesus did for us. And Jesus, part of the gospel is he ascended. He's at the right hand of the throne of God but we're his body, we're here and that means as body we are Christ to other people because he lives in us. So who are you present to? The church is a community. It's a family. It shouldn't be weird to call someone to check in or just to go out for coffee to encourage them. It shouldn't be weird to have a group of friends who can minister to you and to whom you can minister in return. Even if it's hard, maybe even involving a little suffering that they might increase in joy, that they might experience more of Christ. It should be normal to supply what Others are lacking. Mainly Christ himself, both inside the church (coughs) and outside the church. To whom are you being Christ? As we conclude here, I want to talk about what these guys had in common. They were both servants. See, there's acts of service (coughs) There are tasks to complete. There's a gospel to preach. There are people to love. But beneath all of that and before all of that, there must be the heart of a servant. We can serve. But if we don't do it with the heart of a servant, it's not going to go anywhere. The, the, the church in Corinth was fighting and disputing a whole lot more than the church in Philippi was and part of their disputing was who was more important. Was it Paul, or was it Apollos, or was it Cephas? Like, who's who's really the guy we should follow? And Paul said, time out over there early on in that book, in that letter, and he said, you know what? It doesn't matter who Paul is, speaking about himself. It doesn't matter who Apollos is. We are servants through whom you came to believe. It doesn't matter if I planted and Apollos watered the garden. It matters who gives the growth. And that's Christ. And so these guys were servants. They would, have, they, would, they would never appear in the pages of Scripture if it was up to them. The Apostle Paul, by the Holy Spirit, thought it fit to include them, and rightly so, for us to learn. But they weren't about to go tooting their own horn. And the first thing that I look for in people, and uh, I serve on a committee as well for our conference and we credential pastors and license them for ministry with our conference in the province of BC. So I don't look for how theologically astute they are. I don't look for how much they've done or how long their resume is. I want to know first, are you a humble servant of the king? Because if you're not, don't bother. I don't care what spiritual gifts people possess or if they have one of the five-fold spiritual offices in Ephesians chapter three or four. I, I want to know is the, the spiritual fruit and the character of humility and service and authenticity and honesty and sincerity part of their life. And that's who these guys were. And there are people in this church who exemplify service for others that is rooted in their life for Christ Far beyond what I'm capable of. And these are the people that I and I've been told by some of them, Eldon, don't you dare even mention my name from the stage, <laughs> or I will not be happy with you. Let alone be up here, right? But they need to be recognized, even as Paul recognized Timothy and Epaphroditus and imitated. This is what discipleship is all about. This is community we can learn. Secondly, they were family. Um, I I think it's very intentional. I know it's intentional that uh, Paul described Timothy as a son and he described Epaphroditus as a brother. Uh, Because uh, Paul and Epaphroditus was so similar. They were like brothers, feisty soldiers (laughs) going through shipwrecks, getting beaten up, nearly dying. Timothy wasn't that way. He was his son. He needed a little bit of arm around the shoulder, some encouragement. You can do this. And in the church, we're a family. It's one of the metaphors, probably six or seven metaphors in the church for in the Bible for what the church is, and one of them is a family. Yes, families fight, they're not perfect. But ultimately they're there for each other because blood does run thicker than water. And in the church, it's the blood of Jesus. Third, they were honored. And I think we need to generate and get back to a genuine culture of honor in the church. There's too many churches that honor people and give them position because they have wealth. Well, he has lots of money, so he should be in leadership. He's a successful businessman. Oh, he's a doctor or a lawyer or what or... So automatically, they're given honor and status. Wrong. Paul said in First Thessalonians 5, honor those who work hard among you, who prove their worth in the gospel, who have character and integrity. Those are the people that we should honor in the church. Fourth, uh, the... They both sought the interests of Jesus Christ. And I end with this because this is the most important. Listen, we're all wired differently. Timothy was up front and people-oriented. He was a pastor. Epaphroditus was behind the scenes, a hard worker, get-it-done kind of a guy. Just like we're all different here. They had different circumstances. Epaphroditus was ill, actually almost died, (laughs) Timothy was a little bit ill, but doing better. One was able to travel, one was suffering and couldn't. But the one thing, despite our differences, our circumstances, is that we can and we must all seek the interests of Christ. Primarily and particularly that others would come to know him committed to promoting and proclaiming the good news of Jesus in how we live and in what we say and part of the reorienting of our hearts to be more concerned about others than ourselves is seeking the interests of Christ doing what Christ is concerned about and if we're seeking genuinely the things that interest Christ we will care about others, we will relate to them warmly, we will work hard for them and endure hardship as a soldier and serve them in commitment and in honor so that others can come to know Christ, and so that others will follow him more authentically. And listen, I want to tell you, I would not be up here this morning. Maybe some of you think I shouldn't be, but regardless, I am. I would not be up here this morning without a Paul, a Timothy, and a Epaphroditus to imitate. Only there weren't. their names weren't Paul, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. They were actually Ike, Ken, and Ralph. And they wouldn't have been worthwhile to imitate had they not been. Had it not been for the fact they, that they first imitated Christ and poured themselves into me. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself Jesus, your table, the Lord's Supper, is set before us. Uh, What a high calling that you answered, and what a high calling it is that you ask us to imitate. And Lord, we strive to be like you, but we know that we'll never be perfect. And so we thank you for people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. And I thank you for men like Ike and Ken and Ralph who came alongside me and poured themselves into me (coughs) that I might imitate them in service for you. So Lord, I praise you, and I pray that you would generate amongst us a culture that is exactly what Paul was getting at in the book of the letter to the church in Philippi. Thank you for these these two lights who shone brightly that we can imitate. (coughs) So help us to do so. And Lord, as we look to partake of a cup piece of bread that represent your broken body and your shed blood for us may we do so with thankfulness but also to be inspired to imitate you and to have others imitate us so bless us lord during this next few moments together around your table in christ's name i pray amen